Today's scripture reading is John 5, 1 through 18. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem, by the Sheep Gate, a pool, in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. This is the word of the Lord. I invite you to turn your, your Bibles to John chapter 5. That's where we're going to be at this morning. John chapter 5. It's on page 890 in the Pew Bible that's in front of you, if you're using that one. Um, this is a few years back. Um, it was when I was in college. And uh, during the winter, one year, we had a, uh, a very significant ice storm that shut down campus for a few days. And, um, you know, all the roads were just kind of sheets of ice. And uh, I was uh, employed at our church at the time, and so I needed to be there uh, in the evening. And uh, I also got an email from our campus security that said you had to move your car from this parking lot to the lot across campus so they could kind of do whatever they needed to do to take care of this parking lot. So I thought, hey, you know what? I'm going to kill two birds with one stone, and I'm going to move my car to the church parking lot, and I'll just walk back. It's a three-minute walk or so. I'll just walk back. So... Like a very good, responsible driver, I was taking my time, you know, driving on this ice, and I'm, you know, kind of, you know, everything is going great. And as soon as I go to turn into the church parking lot, come to find out the roads had been a little better treated than the parking lot had been. And so as soon as my wheels hit the parking lot, I completely had no traction. And I was just on a sheet of ice. So the back of my car is sticking out into the road, and the front of my car is in the parking lot. And so I quickly run through the list of things that I knew what to do. And if you know me, that's a very quick list. And I was at the end of everything I knew what to do. So I was just like, okay, well, I can't call anybody because all the roads are ice, so no one's going to be able to make it here. What do I do? And after, you know, it was probably 10, 15 minutes, um, my pastor walks out. And he didn't know what was going on. He walked out and kind of looks and sees me here kind of on the ground doing whatever I could to get my... And he just kind of looks and he smiles. He says, do you need some help? And normally I would be a little sarcastic in my response, but I just said, yeah, could you give me a hand? And so with his help, we managed to get my car out back into the road. And then he told me after that, he said, hey, you know what? On the other side of the parking lot, there's a few spots that are cleared out that I parked there. And you can drive over there and park right next to me. This was great. And 
You know, the question, though, do you need help, can seem like a strange one at that moment. And yet, how often is it the case that you and I, when other people look and say, hey, do you need some help with that? We say, no, thanks. I got it. No, I'm fine. When I'm at the store, hey, do you need help finding what you're looking for? No, thanks. I have no idea where that thing is, but I don't want help. Do you need some help? Jesus, in our text today, will ask a man who has been unable to walk for 38 years, do you want to be healed? And it will seem to us to be a strange question. And yet, maybe we need to consider the same one ourselves. In our text this morning, in John chapter 5, we will see four statements from Jesus, all of which are quite surprising. And by this point in our study of John's gospel, I hope that you begin to expect Jesus will say things that surprise us. He doesn't do things exactly as we would expect him to do. He doesn't say things exactly as we would expect it to play out. And so we will see four statements from Jesus, and that will essentially be our outline this morning. We will look at these four statements and use them as sort of handrails to walk through our text. But we pick it up in verse 1 to get the context of what's happening. Chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. After this, there was a feast of the Jews. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. So after he healed the official's son, we don't know how much longer it was after that, but he did some ministry in Galilee, and then he had to go back to Jerusalem. So after this, he went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem, by the sheep gate, a pool, an Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. As a side note, they, uh, for a while there, they didn't know where this pool Bethesda was, and people thought, well, you know, the Bible's probably not historically accurate, there probably wasn't a pool here. Well, guess what? They found it, and you can see the ruins of it today. The Bible does know what it's talking about, go figure, and there's a pool called Bethesda. In these pools lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. And one man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. We don't know if he was born that way or if something happened to him along the way. I think in our text we might see a clue later on that perhaps something happened to him a little later. But nonetheless, we do know this, that for 38 years he has been sitting here, probably at this same pool, waiting to be healed. 38 years, since 1985 until today. Many of us weren't even born then. This guy's been waiting and waiting and waiting to be healed. Now, we don't know if there was actual medicinal quality to these pools or not. We do know. I mean, they tell us today, hey, certain kinds of water is going to be better for certain kinds of illnesses. And so, you know, we don't know if there was certain medicinal properties about these pools that uh, brought about healing. But we do know that there seems to be a prevailing notion at the time that uh, these pools had sort of a a mystical quality that would bring about healing. You notice the man says to Jesus in response, in verse 7, about the water being stirred up. So so there's something about the water being stirred up that the people there thought uh, brought about healing. Well, the answer to that comes in John chapter 5, verse 4. So look in your Bibles at verse 4. And now we find out who's reading from the King James Version or not. If you have the King James Version, you'll find verse 4 and think, well, there's nothing odd about this. If you have any modern translation, we use the ESV here. If you use ESV or the CSB or the NASB or the NIV or the NLT or these modern translations, verse 4 is missing. It goes from verse 3 to verse 5. What happens is that we, uh, the, the, the best and oldest manuscripts that we have of John's gospel do not contain verse 4 in it. And so it's almost certainly true that verse 4 was not original to the text. It's not part of the inspired, inerrant scriptures. Now, what what can happen is when you come to something like that, you're like, "Uh uh-oh, can we really trust the Bible? We'll come to an even uh, more significant example, perhaps, in John chapter 8 in a little bit. But what I want to suggest to you is that actually in these moments, this should increase your trust in scripture, not decrease it, because the translators are not trying to hide anything from you. They're not trying to say, well, hey, you know what? This is what we had in there, but the the best evidence now suggests that this isn't there, but we're going to keep it in there and just not tell anybody. Here's what they do. They they pull it and they put it in a footnote in your Bible. You see it, it's in the footnotes. They'll tell you exactly what it says. And they say, hey, you know what? Uh, Some manuscripts say this. We don't think it's actually original, but they're not trying to hide anything is the point. 
So you can trust that what you have here is actually historically uh, verifiable. But here's what the footnote says. Some manuscripts insert wholly or in part waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred the water. Whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was healed of whatever disease that he had. So this, this is, that is not inspired scripture, but it seems to be probably explaining to us what people at the time would have thought this stirring of the water really was about. See, probably what happened was this, that someone, as they're taking down the scriptures, see what would happen is before the printing press and all this, you would copy it by hand. So as someone was copying the the text by hand, they thought, hey, you know what? People are going to be confused about this stirring of the water business. Well, here, let's explain what is meant by that. They probably put in a little note to explain, here's what the stirring of the water was about. So, an angel probably didn't actually come down and stir up the water, but the people at the time were sitting by the pool. Why? Because they thought an angel's going to come, stir up the water, and the first person in, whoever wins the race into the pool, is going to be healed of whatever their sickness is. And so that's why you have at these pools all of these people with various illnesses, the blind and the lame and the helpless, all of them are coming here, and they're sitting, and they're waiting. And they're waiting. And once the water's stirred, there's a mad rush to try to get in the pool because they think that's going to bring us healing. So this man has been sitting here for 38 years, waiting. And one day, Jesus walks by. It was not a random occurrence. Just as he had sought out the woman at the well, so too is he seeking out this man by the pool. Jesus apparently likes water. And notice, verse 6 tells you, Jesus knew this man had been lying here a long time. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew he had already been there a long time. How does Jesus know that? I mean, is this guy wearing a name tag? Hi, my name is Bob and I've been here for 38 years. I mean, probably not. How does Jesus know this? This is probably an example of the fact that the Lord Christ knows the hearts of men before they even open their mouths. He walks by and he looks at this guy and he knows everything about him. He knows that he's been laying here for 38 years, that he is helpless. He cannot walk. Jesus knows exactly his situation. And Jesus is driven with compassion to say something to him. And so Jesus then says, do you want to be healed? There's a call to healing that comes. Do you want to be healed? It seems like an odd question to ask someone who's been sitting there for 38 years. It's not like the guy is going to respond, oh, hey, you know what? Guess I never had thought about that before. And this guy seems to think this is a dumb question because his response is not, yes, would you please help me? His response is basically to blow it off and to explain why he's not better yet. Look at how the man responds to Jesus. The sick man answered him in verse seven, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And when I'm going, another steps down before me. So here's his answer. It's basically, well, do you want to be healed? Well, yes, but let me tell you why I'm not yet. It's because no one else is helping me. The system is conspiring against me. There's plenty of reasons this guy's got for the reason he's not better yet. So he doesn't come to Jesus asking, would you help me? He comes saying, here's the reasons why I'm not healed right now. Could it be that some of you are in the same spot this morning? And Jesus comes to you and says, do you want to be healed? And maybe not speaking physically, but certainly spiritually, do you want to be healed? And you come up with all the reasons why that hasn't happened yet. Maybe for some of you, it's because you're waiting for a better, more convenient time, like this man was. He was waiting, sitting here waiting, and he was thinking, okay, when the pools are stirred, when there's a, when there's a, a, a better time and the pools start being stirred up, that's when I'll get serious about this. But in the meantime, I'm waiting. And maybe you're thinking the same thing. You know what, when there's a better time, there's a more convenient time, I'll get serious about the faith one of these days. You know, right now I'm, I'm so busy with the kids, with work, with school. I don't get a, a lot of time to focus on the whole Jesus stuff, but sure, I'll, there, there's gonna come a time where that'll happen. Or maybe some of you, you're waiting on someone else to do something to help you out. You think, yeah, you know what, I'm, I'm not too fired up about Jesus, but if someone else were to kind of take the initiative and, and kind of, do a bunch of the work for me and help me, sure, I'd I'd be open to that. Or maybe 
you're waiting for a divine intervention. This man was waiting for an angel to come down from heaven and stir up the pool. And Okay, well then I'll, I'll do something. And maybe you're waiting. Here, if God were just to show up and do this big sign and wonder in my life and, and answer all the prayers that I wanted to answer in just the right way, well then maybe I would take him seriously. Whatever the reason is, do we respond much like this man responds and says, do you want to be well? Well, sure, but let me give you a list of reasons why it hasn't happened yet. Do not miss in this moment the striking compassion of the Lord Jesus. He walks up to the pools of Bethesda and all that he sees around him are those who are sick. There are people who are blind, who cannot walk, who are completely helpless on their own. It's a pitiful scene and all the people are focused on the water. They think the water is going to bring us healing. And so as they look at the water thinking that will bring them healing, they miss the fact that the Christ who can make them well in an instant is walking in their midst and they don't even notice him. In the, in the rest of the Gospels, when Jesus walks around places, the crowds flock to him wanting healing. In fact, we read of a story of, of a woman who works her way through the crowds and thinks, if I can just touch the garments of Jesus, I'll be made well. The crowds are coming to him thinking, this guy is going to heal us. And here he walks by the pools of people who are desperately in need of healing, and they don't even recognize who it is that walks among them. Do not be so focused on the water. Do not be so focused on these other avenues thinking, well, this will bring me healing, that you miss Christ where he's working. And in his compassion, he seeks out this man to make him well. It's amazing. You say, why does Jesus seek out this man and not the others? Well, it wasn't this man's faith. He certainly doesn't seem to have this glaring statement of faith to say, you want to be healed? Well, yes, I know that you're the Messiah, so you can do all things, so you're going to make me well. He doesn't have this statement of faith. It's not a confession of faith as him as a believer. He just makes some excuses, but Jesus has compassion on him, takes pity on him, and he has the compassion to act to make him well. What Jesus sees is a man who has been here for 38 years, unable to walk, and Jesus, with great compassion, says, do you want to be healed? And the man doesn't respond, yes, please make me better, Lord, and yet Jesus has the compassion to say to him, get up, take your bed, and walk. Do you think the man had never tried that before? Do you think he had never tried to get up before over the last 38 years? Do you think he had never tried to move his legs and see if they would actually hold up his weight as he stood up? Some of you are your football fans, and you might remember years ago, the quarterback Peyton Manning missed a whole season due to a serious neck injury, nerve damage in his neck. It threatened the future of his playing career. And I remember him saying after, a while after the fact, about how every, every night he would go to bed and he would think, tomorrow's going to be the day that the nerves start firing again in my arm. He couldn't throw a football. It's kind of important when you're a... NFL quarterback, he'd go to bed and think, tomorrow's going to be the day it all comes back. And he'd wake up the next day to disappointment when it didn't. Day after day after day. And some of you know what that's like to live with a chronic health issue to where every day you get up with the hope that today's going to be the day that it gets better and every day comes with the disappointment that it's not. And there comes a time then when you uh, stop hoping because you don't want to get your hopes up just to have them dashed once more. Surely that's where this man was. After 38 years, he had tried, and he had tried, and perhaps he didn't even want to hope that this could actually be the thing that made him well, just to open himself up to one more disappointment. Jesus comes and says, get up, take your bed, and walk. It's not what we expect him to say. The man had just told Jesus, yeah, the reason I'm not well is because no one's here to help me into the pool. So what would we expect Jesus to say? We'd expect Jesus to say, okay, you know what? I'll sit here with you, and when the waters are stirred, I'll help you get into the pool. Remember last week, we saw the official's son, and what do you say? Jesus, come with me to heal my child. And Jesus basically says, I'm not going to go with you, but I'm going to give you my word. He's going to live. And with this man, Jesus doesn't say, sure, I'll stick around and help you get in the water. He gives him his word. You will walk. And the word of Christ is enough. 
See, the waters of Bethesda are not needed to bring the kind of healing this man seeks. All that is needed is the word of Christ. And as Jesus says, get up and walk, the healing that this man only had dreamed of, the healing that these waters were supposed to provide him, the healing that so many had come to this very place to find was found not in the waters, but through the mere word of a man who had come to these pools to do precisely this, who says to the man unable to walk for 38 years, get up and walk. We need to know that Jesus can and does do miracles like this. Miracles that bring healing to the human body, and he continues to do that today. He does not do it with everybody. In fact, notice in our story that he heals this man, and it seems he left everybody else at the pools. Jesus doesn't do it all the time, but he can do it. And that's why, as Christians, we pray. That's why we pray for those who are dealing with health issues. That's why we pray for those who are sick, It's because we know our Lord can heal. That the one who created the human body with his word can utter a word and heal the human body just like he did with this man at the pool. He says to the man, get up, take your bed and walk. And to his credit, the man does. We read, at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and he walked. Can you imagine the scene that's unfolding in that moment? That this guy who's been for 38 years lying here begins to move his legs. He says, well, something's different now. And he begins to stand up, and he doesn't just collapse under the weight. He says, I, I can walk again. He starts running around and jumping around and dancing and saying, I'm healed. Can you imagine the joyous scene that happens in that moment? Do not miss the fact that this Jesus tells a man who cannot walk to get up and walk, and the man walks. Such is the power of the word of Christ. It's a command that seems impossible to obey, but the word of Christ carries with it the power to enable that command to be obeyed. This is how he works. He tells the lame to walk even though they cannot walk. He tells the blind to see even though they cannot see. He tells the dead to live even though they cannot live. Friends, that's how the gospel works. Jesus tells people to believe even though they cannot believe, and yet the command of Christ carries with it such power that it enables people to believe in him as he calls us to. Get up and walk, repent and believe. With man, things are impossible, but not with God. The word of Christ has this power. You know, every person that you meet is in desperate need of healing. Often physically, but always spiritually. In that sense, the the world is one big pool of Bethesda, people gathering around waiting to be healed. Sick, dying, dead spiritually. And the Lord walked among us. And he came up to you and said, do you want to be healed? You say, why me? Well, it was nothing besides for his free favor that he chose you. It's not because you were more presentable than others. It's not because you had more faith than others. It's not because you were more useful to him than others. It was because the Lord looked upon you with compassion and loved you just like this man at the pool. As the song well puts it, as I ran my hellbound race, indifferent to the cost, you, Lord, looked upon my helpless state and led me to the cross. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost, the lost who were not seeking him. And he walked through the crowd of spiritually dead and broken people, people who are lost and aimless like you and me. And he walks up to you and he chooses to show you compassion and says, do you want to be healed? Well, get up and live. Through his life, his death, his resurrection, he secured for his people eternal life, given freely and without any merit of our own, but according to his grace and kindness and compassion. And if we have experienced that kind of love from our Savior, then how could we not show that kind of love to other people? How could we not also look at other people with the kind of compassion that Jesus looked at us with? Friend, we will not live with the kind of Christ-like compassion we ought to live with unless we have first been shown the compassion of Christ. We will not uh, love and be gracious to those in a Christ-like way unless we first have been loved and shown grace by Christ. And when that happens, we begin to view people the way that Jesus views people. So when you're walking around and you see people who are in need, do you seek to avoid them? Or do you seek to help them like Jesus did? Maybe a better way to put it is, do you respond 
like Jesus does in our text? Or do you respond like the Pharisees respond in our text? Because verse 9 contains a statement that shows us there's an important detail that's going to be problematic here. The end of verse 9. Now that day was the Sabbath. And if you're familiar with your Bibles, you're thinking, "Uh uh-oh, we're about to have some problems. Jesus is going to have a run-in with these religious leaders here. We continue in verse 10. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in that place. Pharisees have a problem with this. So wait a second, time out. You're not allowed to pick up your bed and walk on the Sabbath. That was the law they had. Now, what chapter and verse does that law come from? Here's a hint. You're going to have an easier time finding John chapter 5, verse 4, than you will finding that verse. It's not there. Side note, if someone tells you, hey, you've got to memorize a verse of Scripture, tell them, I'll memorize John 5, 4 in the ESV. Thank you very much. And uh, that's a way around that. See, the the command to, uh, the, the law against taking up your bed and walking was nowhere found in Scripture. What happened was the Jews, they, they, they took so seriously, we, we cannot break the Sabbath. The Sabbath was a law given to them by God. That we cannot break the Sabbath. So what we're going to do is we're going to come up with all these other laws to make sure we're not doing this and we're doing this on that Sabbath. And one of them, well, you can't pick up your bed and walk on the Sabbath. And so they come to this man and they say, well, time out. Uh, you're actually breaking the law right now. He's, he's dancing and celebrating. Hey, you're, you're breaking the law. It's the Sabbath. And their issue is not so much with the man, but the man who told him, get up and walk. But Jesus had disappeared from the scene. He doesn't want to be found. He doesn't want to engage in this right at this moment. He'll come back in just a moment. We'll see him come back. But he, he kind of draws away from the crowds. He doesn't want all this attention right now. What we see is that rather than rejoicing with the man about what has happened, the Pharisees are immediately suspicious that something wrong has transpired. And so we have in our text, we see the way that Jesus views this moment is entirely different than the way that the religious leaders are viewing this moment. Jesus looks with compassion. These Jews are looking with suspicion. And I wonder which one of those more resembles you. Every morning when we get up, we put on some glasses through which we will see the world And are the glasses you put on in the morning the glasses that look at others with compassion like our Lord? Or are they glasses that look at other people with suspicion like these religious leaders? And in our social media age, it seems that everybody is wearing the default lenses of suspicion and skepticism. We are skeptical of pretty much everybody and everything all the time. So what happens when someone disagrees with you online? What happens when someone says something that you don't think is best, wisest, right? Well, do you not immediately assume, well, their motives must not be right? They must have the wrong intentions. They must have the wrong motives. So we assume, hey, you know what? Someone disagrees with me. Well, hey, they're just a flaming liberal. They're just woke. They're just unpatriotic. They're just not serious about the Bible. And we start viewing everything through the lens of suspicion and skepticism. We question motives. And I'm not saying there's never a time to have those conversations, but I am saying that we as Christians ought to be people who look at others more with compassion and humility and grace and love and charity than we do at other people with suspicion and skepticism and criticism and name-calling. And we see in our text, there's, there's two ways of viewing what's just happened with this man. And we want to be more like Jesus. Do we see people with compassion? Do we recognize where people are hurting and long to bring them to the help that they desperately need? Well, we'll come back to the religious leaders in a moment. They've got an issue with what's happening, but Jesus withdraws from them. He doesn't want to engage with them right now, but he comes back to find the man. So the man says, hey, I don't know who it was. Again, it wasn't his faith that saved him. It wasn't his faith that made him well. Jesus chose to have compassion on him, even though this man didn't even know who it was. 
who, who, who made you well? I don't know. Some random dude. Jesus comes back to find him. Jesus seeks him out again. Notice in our text, Jesus is the one who does the seeking both times. He seeks him out at the pool and he seeks him out at the temple. Jesus is the one who takes the initiative and so too with us. Jesus is the one who seeks you out. Verse 14. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and he said to him, see, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. And we see in this statement, Jesus is driving at a deeper reality in the man's heart. We have seen that there's a call to healing. We have seen that Jesus has the compassion to act. And now we see that he gives the man a command to holiness, sin no more. Jesus has healed his body, but there is a far more important healing that this man needs. See, Jesus doesn't ignore the man's physical needs, but he also doesn't ignore the fact that the man's greatest needs are spiritual. And I think that's a good model for us as individuals and us as a church to follow. And us as a church, when we think about our local impact here in our community and our global impact among the nations, we should follow this model. See, there's a great many needs that are out there. In fact, there's no end to the needs that are out there. And there's no end to the ways the church can engage in helping meet those needs. Very tangible, physical needs that people have. And we ought to look at people with compassion like our Lord looked upon them. And so we should be committed as a church to helping meet the physical needs of others where we are able to bring water and food and clothing and housing and whatever that might look like, wherever the needs are, we should, we should work to address those. But we must also never forget that the great mission that we have been given, the main mission that we have been given is to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to broken sinners. There are many organizations, and praise God for them, who exist to meet these physical needs. But it is to the church that has been entrusted the mission of the gospel, and we must never lose sight of that as our main calling. Jesus did. Notice, he heals them, and he cares about his physical situation, but he cares even more deeply about his spiritual need. And I think Piper is right when Piper has said that Christians care about all suffering, especially eternal suffering. See, if Jesus didn't heal this man's paralysis, then perhaps the man wouldn't really have cared much about Jesus coming and saying, hey, but I can heal your sins. But Jesus also didn't just say, well, I'll make your legs work and not bring up your sin. Some people today would say, well, hey, you know what, Jesus, that's probably not the time or the place to bring up sin. This man doesn't need to be reminded of sin right here at this moment. And Jesus would have none of that. Our mission as a church, the mission that Christ has given to us is to care for other people with compassion and love and grace and kindness. And when we see people who are in need, we should, we should seek to help them as we can. But make no mistake, our main mission as a church is to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our mission is to proclaim that we are sinners, but there is a good savior who has come to save us. Jesus tells this man, sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. Now, it seems to me, uh, many commentators would take this view as well, that this statement could suggest that the man was sick because of his sin. Sin no more, nothing worse might happen to you. In other words, you're sick because you sinned, but listen, there's something worse than that that'll keep coming if you keep sinning. We don't know this for sure, but it could suggest that the man was sick because he had sinned. We know from other passages like John chapter 9, for example, we'll get to a little later in our study, that we should never assume that the reason a person is suffering is because they sinned. Job, Jesus, we've got plenty of examples of that. However, the scripture is also clear, we should, uh, we should not assume that suffering is never because of sin either. In fact, Corinthians warns against partaking of the bread and the cup in an unworthy manner. He says, that's the reason some of you are sick right now. So it's possible that suffering could come because of sin. Most of the time it doesn't, sometimes it does. Whether that was the case with this man or not, we don't know. But Jesus does know this man has a far bigger problem than the fact that he can't walk or couldn't walk before. There's something far worse than paralyzed for 38 years. What benefit is it to this man to be able to walk his way into hell? Far better to be unable to walk and to see the Lord face to face in heaven. There is something worse. It is to suffer an eternity of conscious torment in hell, separated from the enjoyment of the presence of King Jesus and only under his right and just wrath. That 
is far worse than whatever physical maladies may befall a person here on earth. 38 years paralyzed is nothing compared to that. And so Jesus comes and he says, do you want to be healed? And we would rush to say, well, yes, of course I do. But what kind of healing do you want? There's no indication in our text that the man got it, walked away, a repentant believer. It would seem he was content as long as his legs were healed. He had gotten everything he was looking for. That was all he really wanted, to be able to walk. So he didn't think he needed anything more. And I wonder if our Lord would come to you today and say that he would answer whatever prayers you have. He would heal whatever sickness you're dealing with. He would solve whatever suffering you are uh, currently going through, but leave you in your sin. Would you be content with that? Seems that this man was. Seems all he really wanted was his legs to work. So do you really want to be healed? What matters more, the physical realities that you can see and feel or the spiritual realities in your heart? For all of you say, yes, Lord, I want to be healed. We hear the command, get up and walk. And Jesus says, sin no more. Do you want to be healed enough that you'll let go of the sin that you hold most dear? See, when Jesus commands a spiritually dead person, get up and walk, repent and believe, live. He is also calling them to a radical pursuit of holiness. The free gift of the gospel does not enable a complacency with sin, but it fuels a zealous desire to kill sin in our hearts. Jesus healed this man and his desire was not just to make him healthy, it was to make him holy. And that was Jesus' greatest aim because the man's greatest brokenness was not with his legs, it was with his heart. His greatest problem was not that he couldn't walk, but that he had run after sin. It was not that he couldn't wash in the waters of Bethesda, but that he hadn't washed in the blood of the lamb. It wasn't that he had no friends to throw him into the pool. It was that he had thrown himself after the pleasures of sin. I don't know what it is you're facing today, and I do know that there are some of you who are dealing with such significant suffering of such magnitude that I would be completely embarrassed if you saw my prayer list of what I'm praying for. Some of you know what it's like to live with chronic health complications, long-term, with no end in sight, and to have that hanging over your head day after day after day. But here Jesus is saying, you have a deeper problem than that. It's your sin. Maybe your sin caused your situation. Most likely it didn't. Either way, your sin is still your greatest problem. I remember a few years ago, uh, it was back in 2021, and this was uh, probably... uh, a little less than a year after Tim Keller had been diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. Um, he just died of that earlier this year. Uh, this is back in 2021, and at that point, he, he knew this, he's probably not going to be healed from that. It was just a matter of how long he was going to live. And um, he, he did an interview. He was continuing to minister, continuing to write, continuing to do all these things, and um, did an interview with Kevin DeYoung and Colin Hansen and Justin Taylor, some of those guys, and uh, on, on the podcast. And the, the first part of the podcast was them asking, well, well, Tim, tell us how you're doing. And they began talking about how he was doing with cancer. And he said, uh, you know, people say to me a lot, hey, you know, you're fighting cancer, you're battling cancer. And he's, he's like, listen, I know what people mean by that. Um, it's like my wife, Kathy, and I, we, we know what people mean by that. We don't want to be sticklers for the wording or whatever, he's like, but, but let me be clear, my fight right now is not against cancer, it's against my sin. He said, if it weren't for my fight against my sin, I'd be doing great. I'd be doing just fine if it weren't for my sin. That doesn't mean you ignore the physical suffering. He mentioned, we, we, we weep more in these days than we ever had before, but he also said, we have greater joy in these days than we've ever had before. And he said, you know what? For whatever time the Lord has given to me, I'm committed to killing my sin so I can have a better glimpse of Jesus, my Lord. That's the motivation of a Christian. It doesn't doesn't ignore the physical sufferings that we engage, but it says, I got a greater issue and it's my fight against sin. And it drives us to follow Jesus all the more. 
See, every one of us falls short of the glory of God. Every one of us sins. But Christ walks forth as he does in the crowds and he gives the offer of eternal life. And what he does is to the spiritually dead heart, he gives the command, live. To the spiritually blind eyes, he gives the command, we'll see. To the spiritually lame legs, he gives the command, walk. To the spiritually dull affections, he gives the command, believe. Do you trust him enough to believe that? Do you trust this Jesus enough to believe him when he says this? The man, at least to his credit, got up and walked. Do you believe him? Do you believe Jesus can really make you well? Do you believe Jesus can really heal your sins? Do you believe Jesus can really cause you to be born again? Do you believe that Jesus is good enough that when he calls you to leave your sin, it's for your well-being? Do you believe him? If you believe in him, you repent of your sin. You turn from it. You turn from the sin you're holding to, clinging to. Jesus says, sin no more. And you say, wait, 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 wait. This sin seems to be keeping me alive right now. This sin seems to be giving me my greatest joy. This sin seems to be defining my very identity. And now the question, do you want to be healed? That becomes far trickier now. Because the question, do you trust Jesus enough to get up and walk, leaving your sin behind? To let go of the sin that you hold most dear? And let me suggest to you that you will not do that unless you believe that this Jesus is good and that he is God. And that's where we return to this story with the Pharisees. Because there's a claim to deity that Jesus makes that helps us tie all this together. We see this in verse 15. The man went away and told the Jews it was Jesus who had healed him. So we don't know if the man just was ignorant or you know, we don't know what it was, but nonetheless, the Pharisees are ticked off at Jesus for healing the man. And the man comes back after finding out it was Jesus and says, oh, by the way, guys, it was that guy. Go talk to him. We don't know what his motivation was, but nonetheless, he kind of rats Jesus out to the religious leaders. And so they come and it says, uh, verse 16, this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered him, my father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father making himself equal with God. There is a claim to deity that Jesus is making here. And this is the first time in John's gospel that we read of the religious leaders wanting to put Jesus to death. And why, do, why does that happen? Two reasons, we're told. One, because they think he's a Sabbath breaker. Two, because they think he's a blasphemer. Sometimes you'll hear people saying, well, hey, you know what? Jesus didn't really claim to be God. His disciples kind of came up with that a little bit down the road. Or they didn't really kill Jesus because he was claiming to be God. They killed him because he was just stirring up some trouble. But that is to intentionally misread what is in the text. It says the reason they wanted to kill him is because he was claiming to be God. And to their credit, the Jews knew that's a big no-no. They had learned in their history, often the hard way, that when you worship any God besides the one true God, it will not go well for you. And they had learned that anybody who places himself equal with that God is guilty of the greatest sin. And so Jesus comes along and they know what he's saying. They know what he's getting at. My father is working until now and I am working. See, the Sabbath was a day of rest. As God rested on the seventh day, so too does his creation rest on the seventh day. But on the other hand, God is always working. And so Jesus says, you want to know why I'm working on the Sabbath? God's always working, so I'm always working. All right, there's number one. Number two, my father is working. Now, this probably loses a little of the emphasis for us because we call God father. It is one of the wonderful blessings of the gospel that we call God father. Why? Because we have been adopted as his sons and daughters to the work of Christ Jesus. So we can pray our father who art in heaven. It's a wonderful intimacy that has been given to us through the work of Christ. But in Jesus' day, people didn't talk like that. It was clear in Jesus' statement that he was suggesting he has a far greater intimacy and familiarity with God the Father than anybody else does. And they thought, okay, wait a second. He's claiming that God's his Father. 
and he's claiming that because God's working, he's working. This dude's claiming to be God. And the religious leaders had a problem with that. They sought to put him to death. And of course, they were right to have a problem with that unless Jesus was actually true in what he was saying. So the question is, do you believe Jesus really is God? Do you believe this man doing these things really is God in the flesh? If, that, if you do, then it begins to impact our understanding of the rest of this text. It begins to shape the way that we view him and the way that we trust him. This is a God who seeks out the sick to heal them, to save them, to make them holy. And yes, it's painful to let go of sin, but the one who calls you to do that is good and he is God. The God who saw this man and knew everything about his situation, knew he had been there 38 years unable to walk, who knew everything about him, sees you and knows everything about you. He knows your struggles, he knows your sin, he knows your shame, he knows all of that, and he seeks you out and and pursues you and says, do you want to be healed? In fact, you know, Christians, we, we don't believe that things are coincidences. We believe all things are orchestrated according to the sovereign hand of God. And if that's the case, then maybe the reason you're here this morning is evidence of God's relentless loving pursuit of you. Do you want to be healed? Do you trust him? The one who tells you these things is good. He is not trying to deceive you. He is not trying to rob you. He's not trying to steal your joy. He is seeking to heal you. The God who told this man to get up and walk continues to tell sinners, believe and live. Repent, believe the gospel. And you will never give up sin. You will never repent of sin. You will never let go of the sin you hold so dear unless you believe that this Jesus is God and unless you believe that this Jesus is good in what he says. You know, one of the reasons I, uh, I, I come back to the Lord of the Rings a lot is uh, because I think the, uh, the illustration of the ring, the one ring, is maybe the most powerful, poignant uh, illustrations of sin that could be found in literature and fiction. Um, if you know the story, you know that the ring has a corrupting power and influence, and the creature Gollum is an example of what that can do to a, to a person or a hobbit. And uh, Frodo and Bilbo are, are tempted by the same thing, and they know the ring is corrupting them. They know the ring is destructive, and yet they can't seem to let it go. Because the ring is promising them power, security. It promises them something. They can't seem to get rid of it. And early in the book, in The Fellowship of the Ring, um, Bilbo's getting ready to go away on a long journey and he's going to leave everything to his nephew Frodo, including the ring. Uh, but then he starts to reconsider that a little bit. And he's talking with Gandalf and Bilbo's like, yeah, you know what, I might keep the ring and just give him everything else. And Gandalf says to him very softly um, that Bilbo should leave the ring behind. He says, don't you want to? Don't you want to leave the ring behind? Don't you want to be healed? Bilbo's answer was honest. Well, yes and no. Maybe that's where you're at this morning. Don't you want to be healed? Healed of your sin? Well, yes, but no. I love that sin. It gives me pleasure and joy. Yes and no. So Bilbo starts thinking, well, maybe I'll keep the ring. Gandalf says more sternly, you will be a fool if you do, Bilbo. You make that clear with every word that you say. It has got far too much hold on you. Let it go. And then you can go yourself and be free. But what happens is in that moment, as the the power of the ring begins creeping into Bilbo's heart, he begins to distrust Gandalf and thinks that his friend is actually trying to uh, to, to, to just out for his own self-interest and take it from him. Doesn't think he's actually being good, thinks he's just trying to steal it and come out better himself, doesn't think he's actually looking out for his own best interest, and so Bilbo distrusts Gandalf, and Gandalf roars back in response and says, I am not trying to rob you, but to help you. I wish you would trust me. Friends, Jesus is not trying to rob you, but to help you. Do you trust him? Do you want to be healed? Get up, believe in Christ, repent of your sin, and follow after him. 
It's true, there is something worse than physical discomfort, and if that's the case, then there is also something far greater than physical healing. You think about the joy that came when this man jumped around and celebrated and danced and ran for joy, and you think about the rejoicing that happened then, well, how much more so than the rejoicing that happens when a sinner is brought from death to life? If there is something worse than physical suffering, there is also something better than physical healing, and it is to be made, to be born again in Christ our Lord our savior, our friend, who came to seek and to save the lost. And I'll close with this. I think that there's few people who know this better than Johnny Erickson Tata. Uh, if you're familiar with her story, when she was 17 years old, she was paralyzed from the neck down after a diving accident. So for the last 56 years, she has uh, lived as a paralytic. And her writing, her speaking is profound. And um, she's written about longing for the day where she'll be in heaven and she'll be healed. She knows she's going to be healed in heaven. She'll have a resurrection body. And she talks about she knows she'll be able to jump around and dance and run and do all these things. Her legs are going to work again. She knows that. But she writes this. The first thing that I plan to do on resurrected legs is to drop on grateful, glorified knees. She knows there's coming a day where her body will be restored. Her legs will work again, but there is a greater need in her heart, and it was a need for a savior. So she says, when I get to heaven, before I go run and jump around on these new legs, I'm gonna kneel at the feet of my savior and worship. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace to us that seeks us out. Lord, we we confess our need before you for healing, to be made new, to be made born again in you. And I don't know where everybody's at this morning. I don't know the hearts of those who are here. Your Holy Spirit does. There are some who are maybe just waiting for a better time, for a better moment, for something to happen. There are some who are wondering, can I trust Jesus enough? to let go of this sin. There are some who are suffering, whether that be physically, mentally, spiritually. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would work in each one of our hearts by your word to bring us to Jesus, to see his glory, to see his beauty, to see his wonder, that we would rejoice in him, delight in him in a deeper way so that we can follow him in freedom that we can let go of our sin and rejoice in our Savior. Lord, we thank you for your work in our hearts. We thank you for the gift of Christ given to us without merit, undeserving by your grace. And we ask all of this in his precious name. Amen.